podcast on becoming. I'm your host, Dr. Bruce Ellis Benson. In the previous podcast, we considered the interview with Russell Moore on the Ezra Klein Show. I mentioned then that the teachings of Jesus are much more complex than most Christians make them out to be. They are, simply put, difficult teachings, ones that force us to think about who we are and who we would like to become. Today's podcast takes a look at some of those teachings. We open with a quote from Mark's Gospel. Then the scribes said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and besides him there is no other, and to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself. This is much more important than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. There's something quite remarkable about this passage, though it is an aspect that is generally overlooked by most readers of the text. On the face of it, Jesus seems to give the scribe a great compliment. But read more closely, Jesus' reply was probably not exactly what the scribe would have anticipated. Not far is complimentary as far as it goes. Indeed, Jesus' answer must have certainly be judged to be affirming, even though it was somewhat ambiguous. Yet having given such an excellent answer, surely the scribe would have been expecting a response more like, Well done! you have answered aright, and thus you have reached the kingdom of God. Instead, the scribe gets an enigmatic answer that proves unsettling. We're not told how the scribe responds, or indeed if he responds at all. But we can easily speculate that the scribe would have had in mind something like the following questions. What do you mean by not far? Or, if I'm not already there, exactly what else do I need to know or do in order to get there? That Jesus' answer would have been unsettling to those listening seems to be at least confirmed by what the gospel writer adds after these words. After that, no one dared to ask him any question. It is this unsettling structure that interests me here, for I take it to be at the heart of the Christian message. Put simply, at first glance, Christianity, or following Jesus if you'd like, seems to be this relatively clear thing that can easily be comprehended and perhaps even mastered. Indeed, Jesus himself put things in apparently straightforward terms at certain points. Yet even these relatively simple notions or metaphors that Jesus uses to describe the kingdom or salvation inevitably turn out to be deeper more complex, and more paradoxical than they first appear. Thus read in one way, the Christian Bible can seem relatively uncomplicated and straightforward. Yet read more closely, the passages that seem most simple often turn out to be among the most difficult. Thus, despite what many fervent believers often think about their faith, the content of it is considerably more complex and paradoxical than is normally admitted, whether by those believers themselves, or their pastors, 
or even by some of the theologians that are influential in forming the views of the faithful. In following this complexity, I mean to attend to what I think lies at the very heart of the Christian gospel itself. That is, I think that the very gospel message does not merely contain, but is essentially composed of tensions and complexities at its very heart. One might say that Christian existence following Jesus just is tension and complexity. Or one might put it as follows. Jesus is not in the business of making the Christian life simple. Of course, these tensions and complexities are all too often overlooked or explained away with a certain kind of Prozac hermeneutic that simply blunts the force of what the texts actually say, allowing those texts to become thoroughly domesticated. My response to such readings is simply, have you really read the text? The title of Marcus J. Borg's well-known book, Meeting Jesus Again for the First Time, nicely gets at the complication of thinking that one has read and understood what Jesus is saying, and then discovering that one is, at best, not far from the kingdom. Thus, the more one reads what Jesus says, the more one realizes that not far all too well sums up what it is like to be a follower of Jesus. One is never, or seldom, as we will see, there. Instead, one is always on the way. The moment one thinks, ah, I finally get it, easily turns, with a little further reflection, into the moment of, I still don't quite get it. Well, it'd be fruitful to consider these tensions in the New Testament as a whole, in the logic of Christianity itself, and in competing versions of Christian theology, here I will limit myself to attending merely to what Jesus himself says. As shall become apparent, these complications themselves are already far more than enough to occupy us. My podcast today is based on something I published a number of years ago, though it is still very applicable to our situation today. The original context was the concern that religions of all kinds can become rigid and abusive. While I think this is a real and constant danger, I don't think that a careful reading of what Jesus says could lead to that. Why? Because I think Jesus continually resists any and all attempts to dumb down, to simplify what he's saying. Without doubt, fervent believers, whether Protestant, Roman Catholic, or Eastern Orthodox, often claim a kind of finality. A typical used word is the qualifier absolute about their teachings, which often take the form of X is the absolute truth. Further, they often believe that their access to this absolute truth gives them a privileged place from which to judge others. Yet merely making such claims does not necessarily make them truly absolute. Nor is it clear exactly what possessing absolute truth would look like in practice if one truly did have it. In pursuing what Jesus actually says, I have in mind Jacques Derrida's point that he makes about religions and their own internal logics. He writes, For me there is no such thing as religion. 
within what one calls religions, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, or other religions, there are again tensions, heterogeneity, disruptive volcanoes, sometimes texts, especially those of the prophets, which cannot be reduced to an institution, to a corpus, to a system. I want to keep the right to read these texts in a way which has to be constantly reinvented. It is something which can be totally new at every moment. Well, I find Derrida's rhetoric about something which can be totally new to be implausible. The point he is making here strikes me as quite right. Certainly it is the case that in religion, the religion that we call Christianity, there are multiple tensions and heterogeneity that are extensive. Christian believers often speak of historic orthodoxy, what orthodox Christians throughout the years have always believed, as if this has always been a relatively uncontested and uniform thing. To be sure, we have the historic creeds, such as the Nicene Creed, that provide a genuine continuity. I have no intent in disputing that. While I could point out that arriving at the Nicene Creed was no small task, and the extent of disagreement involved was substantial even after its formulation, that is not going to be my concern here. Instead, I simply want to focus on what Jesus says. Although Derrida specifically mentions prophets as being disruptive, Christianity has the distinction of a founder who is even more disruptive than the Hebrew prophets, and that is saying quite a bit. Of course, Derrida would say that all systems and texts are characterized by difference and thus are self-deconstructing. While I have some questions as to the extent to which this claim is true, it strikes me as relatively correct. Yet it is one thing to make such a general, even an abstract sort of claim. It is another to follow that logic empirically. Here I am interested in pursuing the latter with the goal of illuminating the complexity of much of what Jesus says. So here I will pursue the logic of the not far as it gets worked out in different ways. It is a very typical evangelical Protestant belief that there is some sort of thing you need to do and believe in order to become a Christian, to be saved. No doubt Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox believers have some version of this, but that's not my concern here. Often this Protestant conception is put in terms of asking Jesus into your heart or asking Jesus to become your personal savior. While there are many aspects of both of these ideas that could be considered, I'm more interested in the general belief that something must be done and believed in order for one to be, how should I put this, in. Exactly what one thinks one is in depends on how one views salvation. For many, salvation mainly equals getting to heaven. Well, it no doubt includes that. What Jesus calls the kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven really means something like Jesus' movement. Thus, when he says to the scribe that he is not far, Jesus is saying, you are not far from being part of my community of followers. 
In any case, that there truly is such a set of things that one must do and believe in order to become a Christian is so obvious to many conservative Christians that is simply taken for granted. Of course, as some former colleagues from the theology department at my institution discovered over the years, when they asked students to spell out exactly what those things were, there was considerable discrepancy. For many students, being asked such an explicit question about something for which they had long assumed they knew the answer turned out to be somewhat akin to Augustine's problem with the nature of time. As Augustine puts it, if no one asks me, I know. If I want to explain it to somebody else, I do not know. Specifying exactly what it is you must do and believe in actual practice to be a member of the household of faith turns out to be considerably harder than what fervent believers often believe in the abstract. I begin with this general observation because I think it gets at the problem that is all too well exemplified in the Gospels. Specifically, Jesus himself is so difficult to pin down on what exactly is necessary to be part of the kingdom of heaven. Now, what I have just said will strike many conservative believers as simply wrong. Indeed, the most likely response will be, Jesus is quite clear that you must be born again. And born again is parsed out in terms of what one must do and believe. The passage in which Jesus uses this beautiful and moving metaphor is in John chapter 3, a passage that for many conservative Christians is a central text of Christianity. Now, there are a number of questions or problems that can be raised concerning this passage. One might begin with the fact that only certain English translations use the locution born again. As it turns out, while Ganethai Anathen could mean born again or born anew, the most likely translation is actually born from above, which is not nearly as memorable. But there's a much more difficult problem with the passage. Despite the fact that this formula has become the central metaphor of what it means to be a Christian for many, there's something quite odd about the fact. The oddness is this. The occasion is that a Pharisee named Nicodemus comes to Jesus in the dead of night, and so this turns out to be, from every indication, a private exchange. In other words, as far as we know from gospel reports, Jesus uses this formula of faith only one time for one person. Yet, if it is truly the formula of faith, wouldn't there be multiple instances of Jesus using this formula? Indeed, one would expect that it would become something like a campaign slogan, one repeated not merely by Jesus, but by all of his followers. Yet exactly the opposite is the case. There are two further complications. First, Nicodemus is quite confused by this notion, even though Jesus thinks he should simply get it. Jesus first answers Nicodemus by saying the following, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of the water and spirit. What is born of the flesh is flesh, and what is born of the spirit is spirit. While this answer is hardly simple, what Jesus goes on to say is particularly remarkable, leading us to a second complication. 
He says, Do not be astonished that I said to you, you must be born from above. The wind blows where it chooses, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So Jesus provides Nicodemus an answer that is challenging in two ways. On the one hand, the whole metaphor of being born from above is hardly simple. While I do not mean to suggest that this metaphor makes no sense or that it has no meaning, it is considerably more complicated than Christians often assume. On the other hand, Jesus' point in verses 7 and 8 is precisely that the Spirit works as it wills, and so, as one conservative commentator puts it, we can neither control him nor understand him. Thus, we must be born of a Spirit that we do not control or understand. Such a requirement deals a heavy blow to anyone who thinks that the power of Christianity is something that we can master or control. No, says Jesus. It's quite the other way around. You are the one who is mastered. What is the distinct impression that Nicodemus is at best not far from understanding what one needs to do to become part of the kingdom? If one takes this complexity and puts it together with the metaphor's single appearance, and to make matters worse, neither the story nor the phrase is found in any of the other Gospels, it becomes hard to understand how one might think that the writers of Scripture, or even John, could have intended that this would become the central defining metaphor of Christianity. And yet this is what is, for many conservative Christians, the single most important way of defining what it is to be Christian. From here, the situation only gets more complex. For Jesus does not make everything simple by using merely one metaphor or one way of speaking about what one must do to be saved or to become part of the kingdom. Indeed, it is if he is trying to pull out all the stops and come up with as many metaphors as possible in describing salvation and what the kingdom is like. There are so many of these that we'll be forced here to examine only a few of the most significant ones. One of the more re remarkable examples is one that Christians certainly talk about, but generally do not read carefully enough to see just how problematic it is. Here I'm speaking about the well-known miracle of the paralytic who is let down to Jesus from the roof of the house where Jesus is speaking. Jesus says to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. In one sense, this seems like a relatively straightforward miracle though usually the startling feature is taken to be that Jesus forgives the man's sins first and then heals him later. Yet consider exactly why Jesus both forgives and heals this man. The entire story actually revolves around this man's friends. For it is they who are intent on bringing him to Jesus. It may well be that this man is more than happy to be brought to Jesus, it may even be that he is the one who begged them to bring him. But we are never told anything about this man, whether about his motives, his belief, or his relation to Jesus. We are simply told that he's a paralytic. Instead, we are told about the motives of his friends. Specifically, we are told that when Jesus saw their faith, that is, the faith of these friends, 
It is at this moment and due to their faith that his sins are forgiven. And yet the opposite is not true. There's nothing said about the sins of the friends being forgiven, despite the fact that they are the ones with the faith. Simply put, this is not the way faith is assumed to work. The seemingly apparent logic of faith is that the individual believer exhibits faith and thus is saved. The whole notion of justification by faith, Romans 5, 1, is premised on the basis of individual faith. Indeed, there is good reason for thinking this way. When the woman suffering from hemorrhaging touches Jesus' cloak, he responds to her by saying, Your faith has made you well. So if we take it seriously, the example of the friends of the paralytic leaves us a bit in the lurch. What do we need to do to be saved? Is our friend's faith sufficient for us? Such a story leaves one feeling regarding how faith actually works, somehow not far, but still not there. The story of the paralytic would be enough of a complication were there not at least two other instances in which the formula faith, again, sounds quite different. The first of these is that of the story of the one who is usually identified as the rich young ruler. This is a story that has very much the air of you are not far from the kingdom about it. The young man approaches Jesus and asks him specifically, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? To this Jesus replies, if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. And the young man then asks, which ones? Jesus then reels off the more or less standard list from the Ten Commandments, adding, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And this is where the story gets interesting, in two respects. First, the young man claims, I have kept all of these. That he at least thinks that he is honestly able to say this, and Jesus does not contradict him, is itself remarkable. Who can truly say that he has successfully loved his neighbor as himself all the time, without exception. But even given this confidence, he still goes on to say, what do I still lack? What is remarkable, the second aspect of this response, is that the young man makes the assumption that he does lack something. Somehow he too is not far, but also not there. At this point, Jesus prescribes what he needs to do to finally have eternal life. Jesus says, If you wish to be perfect, go, sell your possessions, and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then, come and follow me. The story, however, turns out rather badly. This was not what the young man wanted to hear. The result was that he went away grieving for he had many possessions. Yet why does Jesus require such a thing this particular person? A typical answer to this story is that Jesus puts its finger on exactly what is keeping this particular young man from being fully perfect, to use Jesus' word. Thus, so the explanation goes, the requirement of selling all is a specific command and so only applicable to this young man. 
were such a convenient way of dealing with the text only possible. Unfortunately, it fails in at least two respects, one minor and one much more significant. In the first respect, it assumes that we know enough about this person to know that Jesus picks this requirement because this is the one thing that he lacks. Yet this is mere conjecture, even despite the fact that Jesus goes on at this point to say to his disciples, truly I tell you, it will be hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. The second respect is that elsewhere, Jesus actually makes this requirement of everyone, saying, none of you can become my disciple if you do not give up all of your possessions. This is truly one of those hard sayings of Jesus. The problem with this passage is that, at least in its literal sense, it seems far too clear, for it speaks of none and all. Jesus does not say that this is the formula only for some people, say, those who are particularly materialistic, nor does he say that one should just have few possessions. But, of course, one can soften this requirement in two ways. First, we can note, as some commentators do, that Jesus uses the present tense, and thus we could conclude that one only need be ready at any moment to give up one's possessions, in the event that God just happens to ask. Second, we can conclude that giving them up means handing them over to Jesus. In this case, we retain them in a practical sense, but theoretically they belong to God, and so we do not hold on to them as possessions. We have them, but they're not really ours. These are, to be sure, much easier readings of the text. On the other hand, Luke has already quoted Jesus as saying much the same thing. Namely, Jesus says, sell your possessions and give alms. Again, this is simply something that Jesus says in a very general way, rather than limiting it to any particular audience. But again, this passage can have much less of a sting if we conclude that what Jesus really means is that his disciples must, as one commentator puts it, inwardly be quite free from their worldly possessions and must regard and use these as gifts of God's love to them to be consecrated by them to a service by bestowing them on the needy and on the promotion of the work of the Lord in general. Again, their requirement now becomes a kind of mental giving up rather than an actual practical giving up. Is this what Jesus is really saying? Something so much less demanding? It strikes me that these softer and less difficult interpretations are the ones we naturally want to be true. Needless to say, very few Christians over the centuries have taken these injunctions in a literal way. Indeed, most Christians would see selling all of one's possessions as an act of supererogation, that is, something far and above what is actually required. Yet, for the sake of argument, let us assume that these milder ways of interpreting these passages are actually correct. Even then, one is still left with a rather demanding commandment after all. For truly having let go of one's possessions, even mentally, is already quite an undertaking. 
how many Christians are really at this point of letting go, that is, where they could quite literally let go of everything they possess. On the other hand, there's good reason to think that some sort of harder version is what Jesus really intends. Note that the passage continues with Peter saying to Jesus, Look, we have left everything and followed you. So Peter, at least, takes Jesus quite literally. One might conclude from these three passages that really is no choice. Selling all is what one must do. And yet the story of Zacchaeus, found a little later in the book of Luke, complicates this conclusion. Zacchaeus is labeled both a chief tax collector and also rich. In ancient Israel, tax collectors not only worked for the Romans or for Herod, which made them conspirators with their oppressors, but were also known for leveling unfair and inequitable taxes on their fellow Jews. Tax collectors made their money by adding an additional cost beyond what they collected for the Romans. We meet Zacchaeus when he climbs up a tree to see Jesus, and then Jesus calls to him and says, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. Zacchaeus' response to Jesus is startling. Without any prompting, he immediately says, Look, half of all my possessions, Lord, I will give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will pay back four times as much. To which Jesus responds, Today salvation has come to this house. This is remarkably good news for Zacchaeus, yet it's hard to reconcile Jesus' enthusiastic and quite explicit comment that Jesus has finally made it with that of the rich young ruler. Both of them are rich, but Jesus obviously thinks that Zacchaeus' promise to give merely half of his possessions away is sufficient, whereas the demand on the rich young ruler was that he give everything away. Why the difference? What makes these passages difficult is there is no explanation either way. Perhaps one could say that Zacchaeus' willingness to pay back anyone he might have defrauded brings his half closer to a whole. But there is nothing in this passage to indicate such a logic. So taken together, what we have are four very different versions of what one needs to do to be saved. The first is the familiar born again. The second is that of the faith of one's friends. The third is that one must sell all. And the fourth is that selling half is quite good enough. As salvation formulas, they hardly jive with one another. Further, it seems impossible to pick out any of these formulas and select it as the one. True, Jesus says to Nicodemus that, quote, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. So there is a kind of universality to this requirement. Yet that same universality can be found in none of you can become my disciple if you do not give up all of your possessions. Conservative Christians have no problem generalizing the first, but the second, far from being generalized, is largely ignored or else softened to the point where it loses any real difficulty or sting. Yet these four accounts are in effect trumped by that of Matthew 25, where Jesus provides a rather startling explanation of how 
all the nations will be judged when the Son of Man comes in his glory. There are at least two unusual aspects to this account. First, the ones who hear the words, Come, you that are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world, are described as doing the following. I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. There's no mention here of being born again, or having faith, or giving all one's possessions to the poor. There is also no indication of a doctrinal requirement, such as believing that Jesus is Lord. Instead, there is one very simple test. Did you take care of those who are the least in society? If so, you're in. If not, you are, as Jesus puts it, accursed and destined for the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. This passage is certainly problematic for the universalist, someone who believes that all will go to heaven. But it's much more problematic for anyone who thinks that some sort of propositional belief is necessary to enter the kingdom. For here it is merely a question of what one does. However, a second aspect of this text is even more startling. The people to whom Jesus welcomes into the kingdom and of whom he says that they have cared for them are surprised, for they have no memory of doing any of these things for Jesus. Indeed, they do not see themselves as being the righteous ones. It is almost as if the left hand did not know what the right hand was doing which Matthew has already relayed Jesus as saying regarding how one should give alms. Yet Jesus insists that just as you did it to one of the least of these who are members of my family, you did it to me. Here we come to a complication regarding the phrase members of my family. Greek wording is actually adelphon mu, which literally translates as my brother's and which Matthew constantly uses to mean other Christians, specifically other Christians who are outspreading the gospel. There is something strange about this interpretation. God is judging the entire world by how they treat Christian emissaries? That, at least, has been the traditional interpretation. And if we put this together with the Luke passages, there seems to be a kind of fit. For if one has sold all of one's possessions and given them to the poor then one is now oneself, the least of these, hungry, thirsty, and likely something of an outcast. Perhaps something along these lines is what Matthew actually means. It would certainly put Christians in a very different place than they are often, at least today, in the Western world. Instead of being in places of privilege and authority, they would have renounced both to become humble and needy. Of course, it has become the more common interpretation to take what Jesus says as applying to all who are hungry and thirsty, alien or naked, sick or in prison. 
Let us dwell for a while with the interpretation that it's Christians who are meant by my brothers and turn back to an even more famous passage in Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount. There are multiple features of what Jesus says here that frustrate any kind of conquering, mastering messianism. Indeed, the logic Jesus puts forth is one that is considerably more disruptive than the passage that we've already considered. For here we come to what could be said to be the mother load of disruptive passages. One way of describing the logic that drives this passage is by way of the refrain, You have heard it said, but I say to you, that accompanies many of the reversals that Jesus continually provides. Those reversals certainly can be found in such commendations of being poor in spirit, of mourning, of being meek, especially when we consider what Jesus says by these strange sayings. To be poor in spirit is to realize that one has no righteousness of one's own and thus is fully dependent upon God. Similarly, to be meek means that one has given up any pretensions of righteousness. Obviously, being poor in spirit and meek are the very opposite of thinking one is privileged or has the corner on truth. But where things really start to get interesting is when Jesus tells his listeners not to resist the one who does evil, to turn the other cheek, to give one's cloak to one who asks for one's coat, and to go the second mile. All of these commands to do that which seems so utterly unnatural could be seen as summed up when Jesus says to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Even if we only took this one commandment and left all of the others behind, Christianity could not be anything other than a messianism that simply could not lead to any kind of triumphalism. What could be more disruptive to any triumphalistic intentions than a command to love and even pray for one's enemies? It's important to realize that love here does not necessarily involve a feeling. True, if one is to really love another, there must be some kind of change of heart. But if one is only at the beginning of moving in this direction, the practical results of such love is that one do that which is loving, to lend the other, in this case the enemy, a helping hand. Yet if I truly love my enemies, then something remarkable happens. Structurally, these enemies will no longer be enemies in the same sense as they were before. For even if they remain against me, and even if I, in whatever way, find them disagreeable or dangerous, they are no longer simply enemies. My relationship toward them, thus my comportment toward them, can no longer remain the same if I am not merely to pray for them, which is the easier thing to do, but actually to love them. What would it really look like to love my enemies? Since really doing this is hard even to imagine, if this is part of what it means to follow Jesus, then one is surely some ways off from the kingdom, perhaps even more than not far. In any case, it is beyond the scope of this particular podcast to work out this change exactly. 
If we couple these passages with those of Matthew 23, things get more complex. For there Jesus says no less than seven times, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, that is, the religious establishment. Jesus begins his litany of their failings by saying, They do not practice what they teach. And in the list that follows, some version of hypocrisy is connected with almost every charge. The scribes and Pharisees put heavy burdens on the common folks, but Jesus says, they themselves are unwilling to lift a finger. Jesus calls them the blind guides who nevertheless make themselves out to be great spiritual examples. They care immensely for the comparatively unimportant tithe of mint and dill and cumin while neglecting justice and mercy and faith. Jesus calls them whitewashed tombs for they seem to be clean and beautiful on the outside, but as he puts it, inside they are full of the bones of the dead and of all kinds of filth. What makes this critique so important is that these very scribes and Pharisees are the ones who prescribe moral and religious law and thus are presumed to be exemplars of that law. Jesus' point is clear enough. These keepers of the law, in one sense, are anything but keepers of the law in another sense. In disrupting the very religious establishment itself, Jesus gives reasons for any of us who think we are exemplars of the law to pause and look deep within ourselves, as well as to consider how well our deeds match our teachings. Jesus' message is clear. The more you think you are truly fulfilling the law or truly living the life of the kingdom, the more you need to be circumspective. And this point naturally leads us to what is probably the most disruptive passage in the Sermon on the Mount. Do not judge so that you might not be judged. For with the judgment that you make, you will be judged. And the measure you give will be the measure you get. Why do you see the speck in your neighbor's eye, but do not notice the log in your own eye? How can you say to your neighbor, let me take the speck out of your eye, while the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your neighbor's eye. There's something particularly alarming about this passage. Basically, if it is taken seriously, it stops one in one's tracks. Of course, some take this admonition, do not judge, to rather simplistic conclusions. Yet Jesus can hardly be saying something as simple as stop judging altogether. Making judgments is part of what it means not just to be an intelligent being, but also necessary to living a right. We make judgments all the time about various things, including others, not to mention ourselves. Not to do so would be simply foolish. So Jesus must have something more nuanced and more complex in mind. And that becomes clear once we look at the entire passage. It is obvious from the context that Jesus has in mind judging other people. But what he says ends up being much more about ourselves. Consider the way in which Jesus sets this up. First, he warns against judging. 
The admonition sought to judge clearly is a stark warning that judging is dangerous. Jesus is more or less saying, you don't really want to get into the business of judging. It's difficult, and it has consequences for you that you may not find so easy to live with. That leads us to Jesus' second point, that any kind of judging of others is always going to be predicated on our judging of ourselves. He sets up a kind of reciprocity of judging. Basically, I will be judged in the same way that I have judged others. Thus, before I get involved in doing any judging, I'd better be sure that I'm willing to be judged by whatever standards I am using to judge other people. However, there is something more complicated at work here, and here we come to a third aspect. Jesus takes it for granted that our judging is inherently biased. We see the little things of which the other is guilty and fail to see the far more significant things of which we are guilty. That Jesus doesn't say sometimes is the case and instead speaks as if this were the normal situation would seem to indicate that there's something structural at work here. We normally are critical of the faults of others and tend to overlook our own faults. It does not take so much introspection to establish that this is all too typical, at least for most of us. So Jesus calls us to deep self-examination even before we begin the business of judging others. And this is where his logic is most disruptive. If I am truly guilty of seeing the speck in the other's eye and simply missing the log in my own eye, I have my work cut out for me. Now, put in the context of this passage, Jesus is saying, before you even think of judging the other person, you had better have entered into a brutally honest assessment of yourself. It is this stage that is difficult. Perhaps we might say so difficult as to make it a question whether one could or would ever be sufficiently done. Why so? I think Friedrich Nietzsche gets at this in one of its comments on lying. Normally we think of lying as something we do to others. But Nietzsche would have us think exactly the opposite. Here's what he says. By lie, I mean wishing not to see something that one does see. Wishing not to see something as one sees it. Whether the lie takes place before witnesses or without witnesses does not matter. The most common lie is that with which one lies to oneself. Lying to others is relatively an exception. As counterintuitive as this might seem, I think Nietzsche's right. That is, we are constantly working very hard not to see that which is plainly before us, the log. The result is that one lies mostly to oneself. If Nietzsche's right that lying to ourselves is the normal state of things, then at what point can we be sure enough of our judgment, sure enough that finally we're telling ourselves the truth, that we can now begin the process of judging others? This is not some academic question. Rather, it gets something that is highly practical. The problem here seems to be that however much one might try to get that log out of one's own eye, one can never be sure one is really at the place of being qualified to judge others, rather than being at the place that is 
not far. If Jesus had merely said, do not judge, he would have actually left us with a much easier commandment to follow. Instead, he leaves us with a command to live differently. First, we must engage in whatever level of introspection is necessary to defend the law in our own eye. Then, we must actually remove it. If the first of these is difficult, then the second is even more so. For identifying the bias, or more probably biases, that keep us from seeing a right is one thing. Truly overcoming them is another. So at what point can one say that one has arrived at the kingdom of God, or arrived at the place where one is fully confident in one's ability to judge others? Given all that we have seen, it would seem difficult for one to say with any real confidence that one is truly there. Indeed, by this point, it would now seem that not far sounds like somewhat of a compliment. But if not far is probably descriptive of the best of us, then who is left standing to pronounce with clear and unwavering certainty about the other? And then exactly what sort of messianic violence can really be done by anyone who takes these words of Jesus seriously? Again, I do not mean to suggest that no judging is possible or desirable, nor do I mean to suggest that there are not certain things that are required for following Jesus. If anything, it is not that Jesus has given us too few pointers, but too many. As to formulas for salvation, perhaps the reason it is hard to reconcile these is because Jesus doesn't intend there to be anything like the formula. Instead, following him is something that cannot be reduced to the formulaic, and thus is always both concrete and provisional. In some ways, that is quite discomforting, for our tendency is to want to know the formula and then be sure we fulfilled it. But from what we have seen, does but from what we have seen, Jesus doesn't seem to be in the business of giving anything like certainty that we are right. What he calls us to is a life that is constantly disrupted one that is constantly showing us that the logic of the kingdom of God is simply not of this world. Thus, these disruptions, far from simply being confusions, are instead intimations of a new kind of human existence. That those intimations often throw our systems and formulas into confusion only show how far and above the logic of the kingdom of heaven is. And so we are always not far. Thank you for joining me. I'm Dr. Bruce Ellis Benson, and this is the podcast on Becoming.